Hey, McDuff. Hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Yay, weekend. We did it. Oh, by the way, this is Cocktails and Conspiracies. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. This is a podcast where we're going to be drinking a few cocktails and talking about conspiracy theories. So today, we're, our theme is, and it's kind of a little dark, but... Um, it's real dark. It's real dark. Mass family murders. The millicides. Have you ever heard that term? No. Yeah. It's a technical term for family annihilation. Oh, God. It basically refers to the killing of one spouse and one or more of their children. Um, okay, anyway, so today we're talking about familicides, the millicides. It's mm. such a hard word to say. It's, I'm not going to say it. Say it. We, say it. The millicides. The millicides. You know, I don't say hard vowels, so the millicides. The millicides, yeah. Mm. So. Why don't you get us going? Okay. Um, well, okay, so a little bit about familicides. Statistics say that the family annihilator is typically a white male in their 30s, but the characteristics of the family annihilators vary. But the common denominator of all of them is rage. So they can be like, I don't know, they just like either snap or they have some sort of inner rage. What is it with you white guys? Come on, y'all. Come on in, white guys in your 30s. I mean, that's when you're supposed to be, like, getting it together. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'll start us off. Yeah. Because I don't, really don't want to end this podcast with this horrible story. Yeah. It's the Watts family murders. Yes. It's so sad. And it recently happened. Like, yeah. last year. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, Chris and Shanann Watts. Which, it took me a while to figure out if that was really how you pronounced it. Because it looks like Shannon. But it is Shanann. So Chris and his family and her family and, like, some of the prosecutors uh, referred to her as Shanann. Shanann. Yeah. So it's it's a little, like, funky side of Shannon. Yeah. Yeah. It's a more, it's, it's a, funky. it's a funky Shannon. Yeah. So Chris and Shanann Watts had been married for six years. They had two little girls, Bella, who was four, and Celeste, who was five. And Shanann was 15 weeks pregnant with their third child, who was a boy. They were such a cutie family. Mm-hmm. Like... Your poster perfect family, and they seem pretty perfect on the outside. They lived in Colorado in a five bedroom house they had purchased a year after getting married, and then, like, right after they get married, they immediately start popping out babies. Mm-hmm. Chris worked at Anadarko Petroleum, mm-hmm. and Shannon sold Thrive. Oh my god, I've used Thrive before. Have you? Have you ever used it? No, I love the shakes. Like, they just tasted really good okay, to me. Okay, yeah. They're supposed to give you more energy and... Did they? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, like, one shake, I think, was equal to two cups of coffee. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a great product, I think, but it might have led to Chris snapping and killing his family. It's a possibility. Yeah. Okay. So, on August 13th, 2008, Shanann returns home from a business trip with another Thrive seller and her really good friend, Nicole Atkinson. She gets home at, like, 2 a.m. because there was some really bad weather in their area. So, like, her flight was delayed, and she ended up getting home at 2 a.m. She was reported missing later that day when she wouldn't return any of Nicole's texts. And somehow, Nicole found out that she missed her OBGYN appointment because she was 15 weeks pregnant. I don't know how she found that out. I could not find it. Maybe she was her emergency contact or something. I mean, the only way she would know – well, I don't know. That doesn't matter, but – 
So she starts kind of freaking out because they talked all the time. And it wasn't like her. Like you and me, we can go days without texting each other. And right. it's like, we'll just pick up on the conversation. Yeah. So I've said this before. I think everyone needs to have that one person in their life. Like if they, you don't hear from that other person for more than like two hours. Yeah. And you're, they're not responding to texts. Then they start to worry. Like me and Tracy will both get worried. Aww. If we don't hear from each other for a few hours. Yeah. You need that person in for your sure. life. Doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. But like like our friends at My Favorite Murders, they say sexy, don't get murdered. Always. Always. So you oh. need that person. That's a good idea. We're not Find that your people buddy, for each everyone. other. No. no. We're so busy. I feel like I'm not that person for anyone. <laughs> what about Randy? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm really bad about it. You can ask anyone. <laughs> so Nicole starts freaking out because she's like, I haven't heard anything from my friend. She goes to their house and like starts ringing the doorbell, pounding on their door and nothing. And so she calls Chris and... The husband. Yeah, the husband. And she's just like, hey, you know, I'm worried that something might be medically wrong or like something. I just have a weird feeling in my gut. Intuition. Always mm-hmm. listen. Mm-hmm. So Chris's first response was, like, super defensive. Apparently, they had been going through marital issues. Mm -hmm. And he was really defensive and said, you know, we're going through some stuff. This is none of your business. But eventually, she convinced him to come home and check the house. But she wasn't satisfied after that phone call. So she calls the police and has them perform a welfare check on Chris Mm -hmm. and their family. So the police show up to Chris's house around 2 p.m. He lets them in answers all their questions, and kind of walks them through the events that took place. Okay, so this is what Chris tells the cops. He said he had woken up around 5 a.m. and noticed that Shanann had come home. He wakes her up, and they have this emotional conversation where Chris calmly tells her that he wants a divorce. Hmm. Okay? The two of them have this conversation about ending their six-year marriage. They were both very upset, crying. And then at approximately 5.15, he leaves for work. So in 15 minutes, he wakes Shanann up. They have this conversation about breaking up, getting a divorce, and then he leaves for work. I don't know and about, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. I've been through a few breakups. It does not take 15 minutes. I've gone through this process. And <laughs> You've it gone is, through a divorce, It is yeah. a month. It is months of conversation. It is, it is not... But 15 15 minutes? minutes, And then calmly going off to work. Like, what the fuck? Anyways. So after the conversation, Shanann tells Chris she's going to be leaving later that day to stay with a friend. But when he leaves for work, he said that Shanann had gone back to bed and that the kids were still asleep. And that was the last he'd seen of them. Who's going to go to sleep after that conversation? Okay. That's not... mm. Multiple cops had listened to his story, and he was pretty consistent with what he told the cops, but obviously there were red flags all over the house, right? When police arrived at the house, it was locked up tight. Every single door and every single window was locked, which isn't really, like, that much of a red flag, Mm -mm. but they kept that in mind because Shanann's purse, keys, and phone were found inside the house, and her car was still in the garage with the girls' car seats inside. Mm -hmm. Who's going to leave without... Any of that, any of that stuff. Right? Like, the bare minimum that I will leave the house with are are my keys and my phone. Yeah, why would you leave without your keys? Why would you just 
Like, or, or, or no especially sense. your phone. Well, and if you're going to leave, how are you going to lock up the house? Because remember, Nicole went to go check up. She's banging on the door, op- trying to open the door. Everything's locked. So how is she going to lock the door? Mm-hmm. We should be detectives. Mm-hmm. So then there was the discovery in the master bedroom. The bed was completely stripped. And they were like, hmm, this is weird. And officials made a note of it. But again, she had been missing for a couple of hours. She wasn't even considered like a missing person right and so they just kind of took note of it they told chris keep trying to get a hold of her and we'll follow up with you the next day so the next day when police followed up shanann and the girls were still missing and they did not have an update on where she could be so this is when they decide to get the public involved and this is when fbi and state officials also get involved they bring in the canine dogs, search the house again, and then they search the exterior of the house to see, like, maybe they left on foot. And if they did, let's follow this trail. While they were searching the house to see if they missed anything, they find the stripped sheets from the bed before mm-hmm. that they saw inside a trash can inside the home. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, they didn't check the trash the day before, but they found it the next day. And during this time, while police investigators are looking in the inside, they're checking the exterior, Chris is on his porch giving an interview to their local news station. That interview's so weird. Oh, my God. Okay, so he says, I just want to know that my girls are safe. If they had left willingly and were safe somewhere, that's okay. I just need to know that they're safe. And then he told reporters, if someone took them and they were in any sort of danger, that's not okay. And whoever took them needs to come forward and step up. And his whole demeanor this whole time is so strange. Yes. He's super calm and has this weird grin on his face and is kind of like a nervous laugh. Not appropriate. Really, really weird. It's gross. Yeah. I hate this guy. So... To wrap up the interview, one of the reporters asked Chris, if your wife could hear this or if your wife could see this, if she's watching, what do you want her to know? Like, What would you tell her? And Chris replies, and this is a direct quote, Shanann, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, just come back. Like if someone took them, just bring them back. I need to see everyone and I need to see everyone again. This house is not complete without anybody here. Please bring them back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, with cases like this, we all know that the spouse is always the first First, suspect. Yes. Always. When Chris was giving his stupid porch interview, officials were looking into his activities in between the time that Shanann got home Mm -hmm. and when the police got involved. So, there was approximately like a 12-hour window right there. And they soon learned that Chris had been very busy during that time. I bet. So busy. Busy little bee. (laughs) Just a busy little bee. So on August 15th, exactly one day after the girls had officially been reported missing, police brought Chris in the station for like an official interview. He stuck to his story and he told them he had no idea where they were. He even offered to take a polygraph test, which which was a huge mistake. So he's like, yeah, I'll take a polygraph test, blah, 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 blah. And the polygraph test determined that he was being deceptive when he answered no to the following questions. Do you know where Shanann Watts is? Did you have anything to do with the disappearance of Shanann, Bella, or Celeste? And did you harm Shanann in any way? 
So he said no to all of those questions. But and, that appeared deceptive. Yeah, the lie detector test said that he was basically lying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at some point during that same day, police receive a call from a woman named Nicole Kessinger. She told police that she was a co-worker of Chris's and that the two had been having an affair for about a month. But Chris had told her that he and his wife were separated. She finds out that they're still married and that she's fucking pregnant on the news. Oh my god! Could you imagine? So, how so she. Would be? Oh my gosh! How awful would you feel? You, I would immediately. You got I would immediately call the police. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so Nicole sees Chris's pathetic front porch interview, and this is when she confronted Chris. She just felt like something was wrong. She felt something in her gut, and she told him she didn't want to hear from him again until after his family was found. So she had a terrible feeling in her gut that maybe she didn't know this man at all. And Obviously. yeah, had a feeling he had something to do with his wife and daughter's decisions. Actually, feel I feel kind of sorry for her. I do too. She was That's tricked. A horrible. Yeah. Horrible situation. I know. And so this is when she decides to call the police. But police, like, they weren't surprised at all that Chris was having an affair. They felt like he had been lying to them the whole time. And this kind of confirmed everyone's gut feeling, right? So when the police were doing their initial investigation on the house, they noticed that the Watson neighbor had a ringer doorbell. And when they <clears throat> when they went back, when like things started getting sketchy, they asked if they could look at their footage to get any like sort yeah. of clues. So through that footage, they were able to confirm when Shannon got home from her trip and when Chris had left for work the next morning. The camera had caught him backing his car up to the house and loading something into the back of it that morning, sometime after 5 a.m. and before he left for work. When questioned about this, Chris told investigators that he had been loading up tools in his truck for work. But it wasn't only what the camera caught that the police took interest in. It was what the camera didn't show. Mm -hmm. At no point did it show Shanann and the girls leaving the house. Right. So according to the camera... They should still be inside, right? And didn't the neighbors also say, like, he never... Because, like, he, he had a really big lifted truck, and he would mm-hmm. always park it, like, on, on the, the street. street. Yeah. And they're like, he never pulls into his yeah. driveway, yeah. ever. Mm-mm-mm. So then the investigators looked into where Chris had worked that day. They learned that Chris had gone to a remote site of the oil company. Mm-hmm. So he worked for Anadarko, and he, I guess they had like a project on a remote site that he had to go to. Yeah, all of those, all of those well paths, they're always out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And a coworker had actually volunteered to go to, in his place, but he declined his offer and told him that he would handle it. So on August 15th, police used drones to trace Chris's GPS route from his work truck to the site and followed this route to get an aerial view of his trip. So with oil companies, like a lot of times, especially with contractors, they have um, they GPS own, trucks. Yeah, because they own the fleet. Right. And, and everything's uh, monitored or whatever. Yeah. So they send out these drones. They're getting an aerial view of his trip. While they're searching his route, these drones spot some new track marks it was basically freshly touched soil Mm -hmm. that like they knew that had been touched like within a couple of days and then they found a sheet on the ground and the pattern on the sheet had matched their master bedroom sheets perfectly 
Yeah. So they also found out during this time, between the time that he had left for work and when he had been called back to the house by Shanann's friend, he called the girls' preschool and let them know that the girls would not be coming back to school next year or the following school year. Why? What was his reason? He just said they're not coming back. He didn't give a reason. Ugh. Remember, it's the middle of August, so it's probably like they're in a about week to or start two. School. Yeah. So he calls the school like last minute, just telling them. I guess he's trying to buy himself time. So while all of this is going on, Chris is at the police station being interrogated, and at some point he calls his dad, who immediately boards a plane and drives to the police headquarters. So I don't know where his dad lived, but he lived far enough to where he had to catch a plane. When his dad gets there, Chris is still being interrogated. So this has been going on for like seven or eight hours. And he's not cracking either. He's not cracking. And this whole time, Chris's dad is just waiting in the waiting room, like at the police station or whatever, wherever they sit. He's just waiting there. And at some point, they take a break, and Chris refuses to say another word until he can speak to his dad. So they put Chris and his dad in a private room and give the two of them some time alone, which it's not really alone because there are still cameras and they're recording everything. And as soon as Chris sees his dad, he just breaks down crying and says, I'm sorry, Dad. I just went into a rage. And that's when Chris changes his story. So Chris tells his dad and investigators that he had been forced into strangling Shanann to death after he caught her strangling their daughter Celeste with Bella laying dead at their feet. He said that she had gone into a rage after their emotional talk about getting divorced and Chris saw what she was doing through the baby monitor. Mm -hmm. And then he went into a rage and killed her. And then he loaded the bodies onto his truck with Shanann wrapped up in that sheet Mm -hmm. and put the girls in trash bags. Mm -mm. I know. Mm -mm. So then he went to that site, buried Shanann in a shallow grave, and he put Bella and Celeste's bodies into big crude oil holding tanks. Those oil tanks were eight inches in diameter. Yeah. That, that, this is actually the part that makes me, like, ill. So at 11.30 p.m. on August 15th, Chris Watts was placed under arrest and charged with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of tampering with the deceased human body. And the following day, Shanann, Bella, and Celeste's bodies were recovered. And by this time, the story had become national news. Like, it's all over the place, right? Kill him. Right? Like, yes. Ugh, I just want to fucking kill him. Um, but, okay, so, like, when they're looking into this and stuff, it's absolutely, like, mortifying. Like, I can't even think about what these guys were going through. Shanann's parents, um, they actually confronted the judge and begged them to take the death penalty off the table. Mm -hmm. And their reasoning was, this is so big of them. Mm -hmm. They were like, this guy chose to take our daughter and our granddaughter's lives. Mm Mm-hmm. But we are not God. We don't feel comfortable choosing to take his life. After this, after Shanann's parents had said, like, we don't want uh, the death penalty for him, that's when he fucking confesses. Like, he's such a fucking coward. So, November 19th, 2018, just a few months ago, District Attorney Michael Roke gives his timeline of the chain of events that likely happened. And so this is what he believed. He believed that everything was planned 
that Chris was motivated by this affair that he was having, but he wanted to kill his family and, like, go on and live with, you know, his... With no strength attached. Right. He strangled the two girls with the baby blanket, first the baby, and then the older girl, Celeste. And so Celeste had actually begged him, like, Daddy, please don't do to me what you just did to Bella. Yeah. Chris had defensive wounds on his arms and hands, and they also found a few defensive wounds on Celeste's body. And then after killing the girls, he killed Shanann. Another possibility is that he killed the girls before Shanann got home from her trip, and then he killed her. Um, He hasn't confessed to any of that yet. Mm. So he loads up the bodies buries a shallow grave for Shanann and then stuffs the girls into this oil drum, which is, again, only eight inches in diameter. These bodies are totally annihilated. When the guys are trying to take them out, they're, like, fucked Mm. up for life. Their skin's coming off, and, like, it's just, like, so traumatic. Yeah, I cannot imagine. And this whole time, so Michael Roke is giving this timeline and this whole time, Chris is looking down and shaking his leg, just looking guilty as fuck. He won't look up. Shanann's whole family speaks during the trial. And first is her dad. He speaks directly to Chris and says, we trusted you. We loved you like our own son. And you took our daughter and granddaughters out like trash. You are a monster. Shanann's mom, brother, and friends spoke after that. And then Chris's parents spoke. Not in defense of their son, but as victims as well. Right. They loved Shanann like a daughter, and he took her and their granddaughters away from them. They did not want any leniency given to their son. Oh, my gosh. But they also said that they would always love their son. Oh, could you... What would... How... I mean... And this was the only time during the entire trial that Chris showed any emotion. He was still looking down, still shaking his leg, but tears were streaming down his face. I mean. Oh, now you're feeling remorseful? Like, oh my gosh. So after Shanann's family spoke and Chris's family spoke, the judge asked Chris if he would like to make a statement of his own. And he declined. Yeah, I was about to say, he said no, right? Yeah. Yeah. Before handing over the final verdict, the judge, Marcelo Kopkow, said, I've been a judicial officer for now 17 years, and I can objectively say that this is perhaps the most inhumane and vicious crime that I have ever handled out of the thousands of cases I have seen. Mm. Nothing less than a maximum sentence could be appropriate, and anything less than a maximum sentence would depreciate the seriousness of this offense. So what do you get? Tell us. So this motherfucker. What's that piece of shit doing? Ugh. He was sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. And additionally, he was sentenced to two concurrent terms of life in prison for the two for two additional charges for the murder of each of his daughters. So I didn't know this. He was charged twice for the murder of each of his daughters. Once for the traditional first degree murder. Mm-hmm. And once as a first-degree murder by a person in a position of trust. <gasps> oh, oh my gosh. That just gave me chills. Yeah, that's I a thing. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. <gasps> oh, that piece of shit. Like that sentence. he burns in hell. Oh, he will. For sure. So he was also charged with the unlawful termination of a human pregnancy. Yep. And charged... There's a fourth murder there. Yeah. 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 And charged three times for the tampering of a deceased human body. So there were nine felonies So in all. he is just getting all of it. Yep. Good. 
He'll be in prison for the rest of his life. Hopefully, he'll be killed. Oh, yeah, because that's a big deal in prison. Like, uh-huh. if you kill children, like, that is, like, the one thing that, like... Which I kind of love. I love that. Too. Right? Like, that I mean, prison justice. Yeah. Like, fuck you. Like, Jailhouse there's no justice. Excuse. Yeah. No, he'll... Yeah, he he's probably in solitary because... Yeah. Like, if anyone found out, like, what he was in for, he would be killed. Ugh, I want to target all my anger towards this motherfucker. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so. so tough. But I'm so glad, like, and they got him so fast, too, which fast. I love. This wasn't a cold case. This didn't go on for years. They just got him. This is an example of excellent police work. Yeah. I know we go the, through a lot of these missing persons cases or, like, murders or something, and we're like, why did the police fuck up so bad? They did an excellent job on this They were on top of it. Okay, so the whole case, from when they called the cops initially to when he was in handcuffs and convicted, it was 69 hours. That's awesome. Yeah. Way to go, guys. I know. And I love that it's 69. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that is the devastating story of the Watts family murders. Oh, that's a good one. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so mine... It's a little down under in New Zealand. Ah! Can you tell the whole story in your <laughs> no, accent, please? No, I won't. Nobody will listen. So mine is it's it's a familicide murder, but there is a little twist to this. So it's so this case, twenty three years after this happened, they're still dividing parties on the conviction. And this okay. is still a discussed case. I have my own opinion. Wait, is this unsolved? In the public's eye, it is kind of unsolved. But from a judiciary standpoint, like, I don't know. I, I'll just tell you the story. Okay. So, so, on the morning of June 20th, 1994, five members of the Bain family were shot dead in their home. The dead were Robin Bain, aged 58, who's the father, his wife Margaret, aged 50, their daughters are, and I cannot say this name, I'm going to spell it for y'all, A-R-A-W-A. A-R-A-W-A, Arawa? Arawa. She's 19, Lania, 18, and then Stephen, who was 14. They had another son, David, who was 22 at the time was then charged by the police with the murder of his family. Oh, David. But there's dividing parties on whether or not he did it. He so sure here's did it. here's the here, and I think he did. I'm just going to call it out right now. But there were only two suspects in this case. Either Robin, the father, murder suicide or David his son. Okay. okay. So here's here's the timeline here. At 5:30 a.m. David Bain's alarm clock was set to activate because he had a paper route. At 22? 22. All right. Red so flag. the thing about David is, like, he had some trouble in school and, like, dropped out. And then he, like, spent some time working and he lived away from his family. But his family had this huge, like, house, like, that was looked derelict. It wasn't a beautiful home, but it was a huge, like, compound. And, like, Good word. Oh, thank you. Um, but then he had kind of moved back and he was going to school for music. He was like a singer and, and okay. stuff like that. So as he was going to school, he like moved back with his parents. That's why he was 22 and had a paper out, which is like fucking weird. It's but, so weird. So his alarm goes off at 5.30 a.m. 
And at this time, in 1994, Robin and his wife, Margaret, they had a tumultuous relationship. And at this time, Robin was sleeping in a trailer on the property. He wasn't sleeping in the house. Okay. So he's out in the trailer, but he would come in and, like, use the house and stuff like that. They just weren't sleeping together, and he was not in the house. Okay. So at 5.30 a.m., David Bain's alarm clock goes off for him to, like, get ready for his paper route. At 6.30... The trailer alarm clock is set to activate. At 6.45 a.m., David is seen at the front gate of their home. At 7 a.m., there's a neighbor awakened by a barking dog. At 7.09 a.m., the 111 call is made um, and the ambulance comes. Can I ask one question real fast? Please don't tell me that was their barking dog and he killed him. It was another barking dog. Total okay. Yeah, just a dog that like heard stuff going on. But the dog is okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, I hate that too. I know. Um, fifteen twenty minutes later, after seven oh nine, um, the call from the ambulance is referred to the police, and then at seven thirty three a.m., police arrive at the home, and they find the home like completely locked up, and they try to enter, and there's like no reply and stuff. So. After he called the cops? Yeah, so he, so they have an audio from his 911 call, and he's, like, wailing. And he's like, they're all dead, they're all dead. Should we listen to it? Oh, not here, no. Oh, no. Oh, God, it's it's really crazy. Uh -uh. So what did the police find when they get this crazy-ass call? When the police get to the porch, they're shut out of the house because David was lying in his bedroom and wouldn't come unlock the door. Like, he's, like, crying and wailing in his bedroom after making that call. Um, so the police had to break in. So David was on the floor at the end of his bed in the fetal position, and he was crying and kept repeating, they're all dead, they're all dead. Oh, fuck. So one of the police officers stay with him in the bedroom, and the other two go and start walking the house. So, in the first room, they find Robin Bain, the father, on the floor with a rifle next to him. There's a bullet wound next to his temple, and that was, like, the first body that was found. So, there's one shot, like, to his head, um, and a rifle is next to him. Laniette, the 18-year-old daughter, is the next body they find. She's lying under a comforter on a bed with three bullet wounds in her head. In the next room they go to, they find Margaret, the mother, shot once. So as the house is situated, when you walk in, that's like the second level. There's the stairs that go down to another level that has a kitchen and like other rooms in it. So after they find the mother shot, they go down to the lower level of the house and Arawa, the 19-year-old, is the next body they found. And as they go down these stairs and, like, open this door, they find her, like, bent back on her knees looking straight towards the doorway, shot once in the forehead. Oh, God. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the detective that's, like, interviewed in this says, like, all your senses are heightened and aware and, like, you're hearing, you're smelling, you're seeing is, like on all levels and like the house is perfectly silent except for like David wailing in his bedroom. Oh my god. So they go back upstairs and they've only found four bodies, but there should be six family members. So where's the fifth person? They haven't found the mom yet, right? No, they found the mom. Oh, who They who haven't found the youngest son, Stephen yet. Okay. 
So the, then the two other police officers decided, okay, like, I'll stay up here. You go down here and, like, look again. Yeah. And so the police officer that stayed on that second level, which is, like, the first level from the front door, he goes back to that door in Margaret's bedroom and opens it, and it's actually another room. And this one is really important because... This is the thing that looks like a dresser? Yeah, that looks like it was, like, it didn't look like another doorway yeah. to a room. There is another room, and they see the youngest, 14-year-old Stephen. So he was lying feet towards the door, like, on his stomach, so they couldn't see his face. Um, and this was different because everybody was kind of shot in their beds, except, you know, except Robin. But Stephen, they could tell there was a struggle. Oh, God. So Stephen... So running. Steve, or her, he woke up. Oh. Instead of stayed asleep in his bed under comforters, right? So there was three bullet wounds, one in his head, one through the palm of his left hand, and then one that, like, kind of missed his head and, like, scraped the side of his right head, like, the right side of his head. At first, it looks like a murder-suicide, and the only reason that David escapes is because of his paper route that he had. So... But the thing I don't understand about... He had a rifle. Isn't a rifle big? How are you going to kill yourself... People kill themselves with rifles all the time. Really? Mm-hmm. They must have long arms, right? Or, yeah, you just hold and, like, pull oh, down fuck. here. Yeah. So, um, first it looks like a murder-suicide, but then, you know, David escaping by having that paper route that he had to get up early for. Um, so, in the room, he remains totally despondent, and then, all of a sudden, he starts to, like, shake and have a fit. That's why the New Zealand people say that he's having a fit. Um, And this is important because the officer that sees him having a fit and in his deposition, like at the trial, he said that he noticed something weird about David's eyes when he does this. So his body's shaking and he fell backwards like off his, like, you know, off his bed and... But his eyes looked completely normal. Like, there was no change to him. And the police officer thought it was weird because he's seen other people have real fits and, like, their eyes, like, either roll back or do something weird. But his looked completely normal. And then, so the ambulance staff gets there and, you know, they're checking him out and his vital signs are completely normal. They couldn't find any signs of injury um, or, like, trauma at all at first. Like, from his, like fit and he yeah so David was trying to pretend to be unconscious but the EMC like and they call him something different down in New Zealand but like he determined that like he was actually conscious because he said one of the things that happens like one of our first checks is like you just rub your fingers over somebody's eyelashes and usually when that happens your eyes flutter yeah. Because you, you're, and if you're unconscious, that doesn't happen. So his definitely fluttered. So he's pretending. And then they said that his seizure was coordinated. So, um, so I'm just like, I'm just presenting some facts and then we'll, we can dive into them. But like, so they check the bodies and they're surprised at how warm Robin the father is. And they think he only died in the last hour, hour and a half. And he appears to be the last shot. One of the things that David kept saying, you know, after he had his fit was like, I've got to give up, get up. I go to university, like I'm a singer. And then, then he said, black hands are coming for me. Black hands are coming for me. So this is, a, I'll, I'll get into like why he said that. So 
David asks for his glasses while the police and like the EMCs are there. And then the police officer looks around and he sees a damaged pair of glasses in David's room. So one of the lenses are out. Now this is going to be important. And as they like kind of walk through the house, they see the computer in that room that Robin was shot in is on. And there is a note on the screen that says, sorry, you were the only one who deserved to stay. What happened on that paper route? That's weird. Maybe he was not on his paper route. I don't think he was. Right? <laughs> so there's two sides to this story, obviously. So the prosecution, the prosecution, and initially, like, this is, like, it was tried a couple of times. There was the first initial prosecution, and he was found guilty. But then in 2009, like 13 years later, he had an appeal, and then he was found innocent. So this is the first trial. So the prosecution's case was as follows. David gets got up by 5 a.m. on the morning of June 20th. After getting dressed, he took his rifle and some ammunition from the wardrobe and unlocked the trigger lock using the spare key. The spare key, which he had kept on a jar on his desk, was used because he left the usual key in the pocket of a raincoat in his father's trailer. David then shot all of his family members except his father, who was out in the trailer. He fought violently with Stephen, losing a lens from his glasses in the struggle. There was much blood. He put his blood-stained clothes in the washing machine, started it, washed himself, and changed into clean clothes, leaving marks in the laundry-slash-bathroom in the process. He went on his usual paper run at roughly 5.45 a.m., hurrying to arrive home slightly earlier than usual at about 6.42 a.m. So he still did his fucking paper. Mm-hmm. Wow. David then went upstairs, switching on the computer at 6.44 a.m., where he typed in a message, then or later, sorry you were the only one who deserved to stay. He waited for his father to come in from the trailer to pray, as was his habit, around 7 a.m. When Robin knelt to pray in the lounge, David shot him in the head from very close range, he rearranged the scene to seem like a suicide, then called 111 to report the killings, pretending to be very agitated. Oh, God. So this is important. So here's some color about like him. So the black hands that he's talking about comes from his, like, you know, he washed up. And in his, like, defense, which I'll get into, the reason he washed up is because he gets the black carbon mm-hmm. from the newspapers yeah. on his hands. Um, they also were able to tell when the computer was switched on, and then they also timed the re- like the boot up of the computer. It's like forty seconds for that computer, like back in the nineties, like turn on. So remember that because it'll be important later okay. about the computer switching on in that time. Okay. So here's the defense's side. David's own story was that he got up at the usual time, put on his running shoes and the yellow newspaper bag, and went on his paper run with the dog. He arrived back around 6.42, 6.43 a.m., entering by the front door and went to his room. He took off the newspaper bag and his shoes there, then went downstairs to the bathroom where he washed his hands, black from the newsprint. He put on some colored clothes in the machine, including a sweatshirt worn on his paper run over the last week, and set it going. So he did the washing for the family in the house. He did the laundry. David Mm -hmm. did. Oh, that was like his chore. Mm -hmm. Okay. He went back upstairs to his room, turning on the light. He then noticed bullets and the trigger lock on the floor. 
He went to his mother's room, finding her dead, then visited the other rooms where he heard, this is important, Lanyette gurgling. Oh, no. And found his father dead in the lounge. He was devastated and rang the emergency number in great distress. The defense proposed that Robin killed the other family members before switching on the computer, typing the message, and then shooting himself. Okay. Okay. So, he was found guilty at this trial. So they said that he murdered his family to gain inheritance, which the parents had put aside for the new house. And summing up, the lawyer told the jury, the Crown had said these events were so bizarre and abnormal that it was impossible for the human mind to conceive any logical or reasonable explanation. Like, it's just, it's a mass murder, right? Yeah. So there was little in the way of motive that was presented for Robin's side. In a formal statement... This guy, Dean Cottle, who, um, Laniet, the daughter, confided in this guy, Dean Cottle, that her father had been having an incestuous relationship with her and that she was planning to blow the whistle the weekend before she and her family were killed. So Dean Cottle failed to show up at court when called, and when he did turn up, the judge found him unreliable as a witness and ruled against admission of his testimony. The defense instead submitted that Robin was a proud school teacher who had been rejected by his family and had snapped after months of presence. At the conclusion, David was convicted of five counts of murder, sentenced to life imprisonment. And while he was imprisoned, um, one thing that got his retrial like going after 13 years was this guy, Joe Karam. He was a former all-black rugby player, and he felt like something was wrong with the case and spearheaded a lengthy campaign to have Bain's convictions overturned. He visited David Bain in prison over 200 times, wrote four books about the case, and he stated in his books that David's innocence is the only possible conclusion. Wait, how does Joe know David? He just, it was a national... He was just really interested in... Yeah, he just heard about it. And he was like, this is crazy. Like, I feel like something's wrong with this case. Um, So the emergence of much new evidence after the trial led to later appeals and eventual overturn of David Bain's conviction pending a retrial. Nine of the most important items were reviewed in the council findings. So here's one. Robin Bain's mental state. The jury at the time did not know he was quite seriously disturbed and had reportedly hit... He was a teacher. He was a professor. He had reportedly hit a student at the school where he was principal. Oh, yeah, he was principal. Sorry, not professor. And had published brutal and sadistic children's stories in the school newsletter, one of which involved a serial murder of members of a family. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Motive. Laniette had apparently told a friend just before the killings that Dean Cottle guy, she was planning to confront her parents that weekend about an incestuous relationship between her and her father, Robin. But the trial judge had ruled this friend's evidence inadmissible. He thought it was unreliable like before, 13 years earlier. Yeah. Um, Do we know why? He just just thought the guy was sketchy. Like, he was like, no, this isn't a reliable witness. Maybe he's nervous. He didn't show up when called. Oh, hustle. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Um, the exclusion of this evidence was the principal question in the first appeal. They're like, to your point, like, why didn't you hear this guy out, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you hear this guy out? Right. Since then, two other people had come forward stating that Lanyan had told them about the incest and another two had given supported statements. 
number three, size of bloody sock prints. So there were prints from a right sock saturated with blood were detected using luminol in Margaret, the mom's room, going in and out of Lanyard's room and in the hallway outside the mom's room. They all seem to be from the same foot measured at 280 millimeters in length, which is like, obviously, I don't know what that is because that's not our measurements. Millimeters? God, so exact. Later measurements showed David's feet to be 300 millimeters in length. According to the Privy Council, Council report, the new evidence throws real doubt on the assumption during the trial that the prints could not have been Robin's. Okay. The time the computer was switched on. So... The jury was told and later reminded by the judge that the computer was turned on precisely at 6.44 a.m. just after David had returned home. However, the exact time was not precisely recorded. Okay, okay. A computer advisor employed by Otago University determined that the time its computer was switched on by identifying how long it had been going and what the current time of day was. However, he was not wearing a watch himself and relied on the watch of a, guy, of a constable that was with him, D.C. Anderson. Constable's watch had no second hand and only five-minute interval divisions, and later upon examination appeared to be two minutes fast. What? Yeah, so during the Privy Council appeal, both sides agreed that the computer could have been turned on as early as 6.39, a.m. Well, regardless, what time did he get home? He got home at his paper route. At 6.30, right? Mm. At... I don't like this, David. This doesn't sound good. At 6.42. Okay. Come on. I mean, it's minutes, right? Yeah. So someone was seen by a passing motorist entering the gate at the house at 6.45. The reliability of this time was left more doubtful because they were not told that the police had checked the car's clock. Um, nor- oh my God, why are all these clocks so different? I don't know. Jesus. So it's kind of like they can't decide like when he got home. Wait, when was this? What year? 1994. Okay. Ownership of the glasses. The jury heard a statement from an optometrist that the glasses found in David's room were David conflicting with David's testimony that they were his mother's. So he said that those glasses in his room that were damaged were his mother's. David was then cross-examined about this in a way that raised doubt over his credibility. The optometrist had, in fact, changed his mind shortly before testifying and believed his statement had been changed to say that they were the mothers, but this had not happened. The jury asked a question about the issue after retiring and were reminded of the conflicting testimony by the judge. The Privy Council concluded that while the ownership of the glasses was not a vital matter in itself, the conflicting evidence may have detracted from David's credibility in the eyes of the jury. This is all messed up. It's crazy. The left-hand lens of the glasses were found in Stephen's room. Remember the glasses were damaged? Yeah, that secret So they room. found the lens in Stephen's room where the struggle was. Right. Okay. During the trial, Detective Weir testified that it was found there in the open. This was more consistent with the Crown's case that it became dislodged during the struggle then there, then what is now accepted that it was found under a skate boot under a jacket and was covered in dust. No way. Yeah. How do you get from it being in the middle of the floor to it being covered in dust? Yeah. It's crazy. It, 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 this, is, this is why it's such a conspiratorial Oh, this is murder. a good one. Okay. So, the other piece of evidence, David's bloody fingerprints on the rifle. 
Okay. David's Uh-oh. fingerprints were found on the rifle, impressed there by... Uh, this is written like a New Zealandy language. So, impressed yeah. there by bloody fingerprints. Basically, like, fingerprints that it wasn't like they lifted it off. Like, it was, like, stuck in there from Press. blood, right? <gasps> During the trial, it was assumed that this was human blood. Other blood on the rifle was definitely human, but his fingerprint blood... They assumed it was human. A test of the fingerprint blood afterwards did not test positive for human DNA, and the prints may have resulted from a possum or a rabbit shooting months beforehand. Oh, come on. Mm -hmm. But let me say this. Robin's fingerprints were not found on that gun at all. Yeah. At all. But that the blood fingerprints weren't human DNA because David said that him and his brother Stephen had gone rabbit hunting like oh, recently. Jesus. Okay. okay. Lanyard's gurgling noise. Oh God. The and this jury, is his sister, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The jury was told that only the murderer could have heard Lanyard gurgling. The second court of appeal heard some contradictory evidence and concluded that it was not so clear cut. The third court of appeal decided that it was, but was criticized by the Privy Council for having stepped outside its reviewing role here. So the Privy Council ruled that the third court of appeal had exceeded its role in, as re- a reviewing body in declaring the implications of all this new evidence. So all this stuff I just went through, there's like now it's back and forth on like, okay, do you have the right to do that? Are you outside of your jurisdiction with like doing all this because of like how they organize their yeah they're trying system. to find like a technicality it's crazy. um that is crazy okay so here's another here's another crazy thing about this too so there were gloves bloody white opera gloves that were <laughs> okay. david's that were found hey red flag hey red flag hey so the David said his father must have worn those gloves and then took them off and then, you know, to use the computer and then shot himself. But here's the question here. Why would he, if he was, okay, one, he had his own gloves. Why would he go and find David's white opera gloves? Yeah. If Robin did this, Robin would have used his own gloves. And then another point, why would you use gloves if you knew you were going to kill yourself? Right. Yeah. So there's a um, lot of there's a so here's here's another thing that really got me is the bloody the blood found on David's clothes. So there was like the shorts and the shirt that he wore for, on his paper out. There was blood found like on the crotch and like on the back of his shirt. And the defense said like, well, he like went around looking at his family. It could have like innocently just gotten on there. But mm-hmm. I think it got on there. And so do a lot of people because of the struggle with Steven because it's Steven's blood. Oh, God. So when, when he went in to go kill Steven, Steven woke up. And they struggled. And here's another point to this struggle. The struggle, I told you, was really important. Because not only does David have Stephen's blood on his clothes in really, like, weird spots. Like, not like you, would, you wouldn't brush your crotch up on him. Right. Like, if That'd you were, weird. like, struggling around, exactly. like, wrestling around, you would. Right. But um, there were wounds on David, fresh injuries on David that... Actually, a wound on his leg was the exact same wound that Stephen had on his body. Like, they hit 
like there's like the the dresser yeah. and stuff was like moved all oh around on robin's body there were old because he was working on the house there's old injuries there's no fresh injuries and if somebody was grappling with steven they would have had defensive wounds and david's hands were all scratched up he had fresh injuries on himself well and steven he's the one with the three shots right there was one yeah. on his hand there's one that missed his grazed head, him and, and then, then the, one on the side yeah, yeah. Sounds like a struggle to me. mm -hmm. For David to maintain his innocence, here's five items of evidence that exist that would make him difficult to maintain innocence right now. One, there's no evidence pointing directly at Robin. There's none. Like, there's no blood on the gun. There's no blood on him that's not his own. There's no injuries from the struggle with Steven. There's nothing like that. I mean, except from that guy, that Dean guy or whatever. Oh, yes. Right. That would be motive, but that's it's not evidence, evidence for right. the murders, okay. right? Um, so David, actually, a few days before that, he told someone at his school that he had a premonition that something horrible was going to happen to his family. Oh, my God. They also have a problem with that note. You know, why wouldn't Robin, like, write it out? Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, then the whole Sorry, you were the only one that deserved. So why is that in past tense? Why wouldn't you say deserves? And also, they did a... Like, they did an examination of, like, how Robin talks. That's not how he talks, but that's how the mom talks. And David was seriously close to his mom, so they think that those are David's... Like, that's his, like, vocabulary and, like, his vernacular. Like, the way he wrote the note. Oh, God. Um, so, faking the fit. That, that is damning. And then Can't the struggle, and then the struggle, so the struggle with Steven, that he had the same wounds on, and he had Steven's blood on him. Faking the fit, the computer switch, um, the premonition, and then there's no direct evidence for the murders, like, that directly point at Robin. So, those five things are really hard for him. He must be the unluckiest person in the world if he's actually innocent for those five things to, like, not actually yeah. add up. So, God. and here's the other thing about Robin that day. So, if Robin did this, if he planned to murder his whole family and just not murder David because he knew he had a paper out, his routine was super normal. So, they could prove that he had stayed in his bed all night in the trailer with a hot water bottle because it was like super cold during that time and then like he actually like he didn't wake up super early he had a full bladder like whenever he died he had a completely full bladder he didn't get up any earlier than his normal time he had actually brought the newspaper in from the from the mailbox because they found the news that daily newspaper like sitting on the table like like, if you were going to get up and kill your family, like, you would get up, you wouldn't get the newspaper. You're not going to get the newspaper, and you're going to take a pee. Right, exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, you know, the whole, like, why would you put on David's gloves things? Like, yeah, why weird. do that? Yeah. So, so essentially, you know, there's just all of these details that have been gone over and over and back and forth because of the initial sentencing, getting the appeal. He's now free. No. Yeah, he... he yeah, in 2009, like, he was found innocent. You know, I was kind of talking about the whole, like, judicial process. Like, there's been a lot of, like, 
people thinking, you know, like you were out of bounds or saying this. And some of the police investigation, like they threw away some swabs of like some blood, like there's some bungles in the police investigation. And so that's why, like for reasonable doubt, like, especially with like all the support of that, like rugby player guy and like all the money and stuff, like, so he's free now. Now a big point of contention is, Will he get money for spending 13 years? That's what's kind of on the docket today is like, does he get compensation for being wrongfully accused for 13 years? because he fucking did it. Yeah, so I think he did it, but there is reasonable doubt. Especially with, I totally think he did too. So he's just living his free life in New Zealand right now. Yeah. After killing his entire family. Yeah. Oh my. Okay, so what do you think? Oh, I think David did it. I would never murder my family. No. I would murder Chris Watt. I would too. I'd love to shoot that motherfucker in the face. Oh, for sure. So, oh okay, well, guys, that was a little intense, but Her hopefully... mind is going a million miles an hour. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. And I think, like, it's it's so sad and, and, you know, but I think, you know, why true crime has had such a resurgence, I think it's like these this stuff doesn't make sense to us. So it's like you want to hear about... Yeah. Like, why? Why Why would does somebody's mind think this way? So I think that's where our fascination comes from. Like, why would somebody do this? Oh, my God. I know. Ugh. All right. Well, happy Friday, guys. Happy Friday. <laughs> I hope we freaked you out. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Lock your doors. Lock your fucking doors. Yeah. Watch your Don't boyfriend. Don't your family. Don't kill like... your family, guys. Okay. All right. Well, we love you. God bless and trust, trust no, no one. one. Bye. Bye. Ugh.